We're at verse 26 of Romans 8. And Paul had just completed a paragraph from verse 18 to 25 in which he had helped us with our suffering by putting it in a global context. Indeed, a universe-wide context. And now he says, likewise. That's my understanding of the word likewise. I've been helping you with a particular angle on your suffering, your groaning. I said to you that you are an heir and you're going to make it to the inheritance. But I said, you'll make it to the inheritance of glory if you suffer with him. And then I talked about your suffering in relationship to the upheavals and the futility and the corruption and bondage of the universe and how God would bring you into his glory and then the universe would follow. And I hope that was helpful, Paul says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Whose groanings are these? It doesn't say the Holy Spirit groans. It says the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings. Might mean that the Holy Spirit's groaning. Or might it mean that those are our groanings, awakened and sustained and carried and informed and made holy and pure and deep and meaningful by the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is interceding for us through our groanings and with our groanings. What's the answer to that question? Well, I think it's the latter, and I'll give you about five contextual reasons. Number one, the Holy Spirit has no reason to groan. These groanings are because of our weakness. He has none. They are owing to our ignorance. He has none. So if those groanings are owing to our weaknesses and our ignorance, I'm inclined to think they're my groanings. Second argument. Um, I've already given you the first one. I mean, the second one with this word with here. It doesn't say he groans. It says he, he intercedes with groanings. Number three, it says that God, he, searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the spirit. He searches hearts. Whose hearts? Ours. Why is he searching in our hearts? Because we're groaning. That's where the groans are. Number four, 
This is perhaps the most important. Up in verse 23, we, even we, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan, waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So having just said three verses earlier that the creation is groaning and we who have the Spirit, who have the Spirit in us are groaning. Why would I think any otherwise than, than here, when we get here, that this is my groaning, the same groaning as verse 23. And then here's, here's the analogy that seals it for me. Verses 15 and 16 said, um, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship by which we, we cry, Abba, Father, come. The Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. And I argued the Holy Spirit's witness is the awakening of my cry, Abba. The, the birth in my heart of a humble, childlike, dependent need for and cry to a father is the witness of the Holy Spirit. That's the way I think this text works. I don't know what to pray. And in my frustration and ignorance and weakness, I can't get it out, but my heart is aching for I know not what in this moment. I don't know what should happen. I don't know which way to go. I don't know how to ask for help because I don't know whether I should live or die. And I'm arguing that those holy groanings are the Spirit's work just like the testimony of the Spirit was our cry, Abba, Father. He creates meaning in our inarticulate groanings. And what does he pray for in our groanings? The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know we don't know what to pray as we ought. But since we're ignorant, the Holy Spirit's not ignorant. The Spirit himself is interceding for us in and through and with our groanings, which are too deep for words. What's he asking for? He's interceding. What's he saying? What's he asking God to do? couple of clues. This word weakness here, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Um, Galatians chapter 4, 13, that word is used for Paul's bodily ailment or 1 Timothy. Five twenty-three. 
He says, Timothy has many ailments. That's this word. Would you think it would be natural then, coming right after groaning as I wait for the redemption of my body, that the weaknesses he's talking about is sickness? I'm, or injury? I mean, do you know how to pray about those? The older you get, the less sure you are how to pray. Right? Because when you're young, you just default. I want to live. So I'm going to pray for healing. When you're 80, 68, 90, Why? Why not go home? At least you can think of some good reasons for both. (laughs) Family issues, grandchildren, unfinished projects, and Jesus. And they're both good, both good. That's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 1. I want to be with Christ. That is far better to remain in the flesh more necessary on your account. I don't know what to pray. So I picture Paul in Rome at night groaning, groaning. And you've groaned. I don't know what to pray, Lord. Got a child. The suffering is so terrible. Or They're on life support, and you're pro-life. You're not into taking tubes out, but God, it's just horrible what she's going through, it seems like. So that word weakness right there, given the fact that it's used a couple of times by Paul for ailments, and given the fact that the immediately preceding context is my body, I just want. I want to be adopted and redeemed because this body is in pain. What should I pray? And the Holy Spirit knows exactly what to pray. He prays the will of God because the the one who searches the heart, so God is, is down there discerning your heart's desire that hasn't yet had words put to it. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying and awakening and purifying your heart's aches that are too deep for words and making them his own. And he does it according to God. Will has been added here. According to God, he's totally, he's God. He's in sync with God as God. God prays to God. God the Spirit prays to God the Father. God the Son, chapter 8, verse 34, 5. The Son is going to intercede for us. The Spirit is interceding for us. God is always praying to God. And guess what? Their prayers are perfect. Totally in sync with God's perfect plan, which is what 
the next verse says. Everything is going to work for your good. That's what he's praying, I think. You don't know what that is. He does. You don't know whether it's best to live or best to die. You don't know whether it's best to be healed or best to suffer. You don't know. And so you ache and you groan and you say, I want your will. I want to serve you. I want to be a faithful sufferer. I want to be triumphant in faith so I can be healed. I don't know how best you'll be glorified here. God knows. And he means for that to be helpful. It is is to me. So I've tried to put your suffering in global perspective and likewise the Holy Spirit, he's so eager to help you. And where he's so especially good at helping you is when you are, because of your ignorance and your weaknesses, you don't know how to pray and your groans are so deep, you can't even put words on them. He's really good at those moments. He's good. Now, that may sound so odd to you. Like God, praise to God. I mean, just simplify. You make things so complicated, God. I mean, just step in and read my mind or don't talk like that. Learn. Admit, accept, God is three in one. And the interactions of those persons in the Godhead is mysterious beyond human imagining. Be reverent when you get a glimpse into the Trinity. And this is one. The great 28. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You know how I would have translated those first three words? But we do know there is a little but there. It's not a strong but, a little but. There's a strong Greek word for but, a weak green word, Greek word for but. It's the weak one. It's a but. Can be. Why would, I, why would I say, but we do know, because he's just said he helps you in your weakness because you don't know. You don't know what to pray. This world is so full of, of futility and so full of corruption and so full of decay and so full of confusion. And I'm so finite and so ignorant. I, there's so many things I don't know, but I know something. Like that's the feel of the connection between verse 28 and 27. There is something you know. The longer you live, the more ignorant you get. At least I do. Meaning, you just discover whole galaxies of things you don't know every day. It's like a new ignorance appears on the horizon. 
which could, which could paralyze you. But not if, but we do know is true. It's not an accident that this is one of the most favorite verses in the Bible. It can be used in a cavalier and thoughtless way. I've never taken offense at anybody who's quoted this verse to me. It's too precious to me. I know a lot of people, they're always mocking 828. Yeah, 828, everything works together for good. Don't you tell me that. She's dead. I've never responded like that. I, I want to caution you. I mean, it's how you do things that matter, right? There is, no, there is no moment when this verse is not precious. None. There's no moment when this verse is not infinitely precious. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What is, what is this good? What's that good? Well, would you think that this four here would take us there? The reason that everything's going to work together for good for those who are called is because those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I think that's the good. Right there. Or a more general way to say it would be, that's the good. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and those in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the called are going to be glorified infallibly. These called have everything worked together for their good. That good is their glory. That good is their conformity to Jesus Christ. That's what I think the good is. There's, out from that central contextual meaning, lots of other things could be said by way of good. But that we know for sure. Everything in the life of God's children serves their conformity to Christ. Everything in the life of God's children serves their making it to glory. What does all things mean? Those who love God, all things take you there. All things. Look at a couple of texts just to get the feel for Paul's theology. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, all things. Through him, all things. To him, all things. Which means there's, there's everything, every event, every object in the universe is 
designed by God, sustained by God, and for God's glory. Therefore, nothing lies outside his control and nothing lies outside his design. Therefore, probably all things means all things. Pretty sweepingly. Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who first hoped in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He works all things. He, he works all things. Sounds like 828, right? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is in charge of all things and he has a will and a counsel and he does all things for his glory. Um, I thought I had another text in there first. Eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give, it, graciously give us all things? That's the all things of 828. He gives us all things because Christ died for us. So, would you go the prosperity gospel route? To define that, I get everything. The problem with that is that the flow of the thought as you move forward takes you here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? To which a prosperity person might say, well, of course they won't separate us from Christ because he won't let them happen to us. As it is written, for your sake we are. We are being killed. That's one of the all things that you get. Murder. Martyrdom. You get that. You think that's a funny way to talk? Like, you get all things, including death. You think that's just, like, that's a Piper flare. <laughs> Look at this. 1 Corinthians 3.21. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, world, life, death. It's not a Piper flare. Flat out quote from the Bible. One of the all things you get is death. You inherit death. One of God's gifts to you is death. And sword and famine and peril. Because he works all things together for good. They aren't good in themselves. How can that be? Chapter 5 not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Oh, really? 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope will never ever put us to shame because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's about as close as Paul could get to try to help us understand how the gift of suffering, how the gift of peril, how the gift of famine, how the gift of nakedness actually are worth rejoicing in. So different. So different. We know that all things, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So, he's just said we groan. We groan, awaiting adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And therefore, there's so many times we don't know how to pray. But one thing we know, everything you groan about is in the hands of God being worked for your good. Your conformity to Christ, your glorification, that we know. And that will get us through. Why does he say those who love God instead of saying those who trust God. Paul only uses the idea of loving God four times in all his letters. It's not a common category in his thinking, which is surprising. Jesus said it's the main commandment in the universe. Paul refers to it four times. My question is, um, why, why love? And it might be that if you go back to the previous, previous verses in the chapter and ask whether there are any pointers to this, you find some. Chapter 8, verse 7. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God, not the mind of the spirit. What's the opposite of hostile? Maybe love for God? Or verse 15. We cry, Abba, Father. That's a real cry, not an artificial affirmation of the doctrine of the fatherhood of God, and therefore it's the love, it's love for our Father. Another possibility, this is the one that gripped me, verse 18 says, um, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Now even though that is my participation in the glory of God. The glory of God is the pinnacle of that experience. And he says, the reason I, I don't consider all these sufferings uh, comparable is because this glory is so precious to me. It's love. It's not just fact. It's love. If you don't love the glory of God more than you love physical ease, that sentence doesn't work. 
If you love physical relief and ease and comfort and security more than you love the glory of God, verse 18 crashes to the ground. So I think he's given us some pointers why he's using the word love here, treasuring here. And maybe, here's one last thought about why love would be here instead of, say, trust. He is promising us that if we love God, we're going to have everything work for our good To say love to God protects our souls from idolizing the good. I think better than to say trust God protects our souls. Because love God means I value God, I esteem God, I treasure God, I count God precious and satisfying to my soul so that when I'm given the gift of the good as a result of that, I won't fall in love with the good because I love God so much better. Maybe that's why he used love instead of trust. At any rate, that's who we are. Those who love God have everything work together for their good. Now, let me ask this question. Is that all Christians or some Christians? Is those who love God here a group of Christians, you know, the really lover types, or or is it all Christians? And of course it's all Christians because the flow of thought in the passage would just fall to pieces if this were a group within a group. The argument goes, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified and glorified. It's not saying, and there's some non-foreknown Christians and some non-predestined Christians and some non-called and non-justified and non-glorified Christians like there's some who don't love God. This is a, it won't work. The whole passage falls to pieces in your hands if you try to make those who love God. But if that's true, the implications here are you're not a Christian if you don't love God. Do you love him? Love him? Don't bracket that question. Like, oh, that's for spiritual people or that's for the next grade up. Not, it's basic. It's saying it's basic. If you don't love God, Romans 8, 28, is not true for you. It's not true. It's not yours. That's pretty amazing. Um, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I'm going to give you the three other places where Paul refers to the love of God, loving God. So this is one of them. That's all Christians, not the natural man, but the spiritual man that is those who love God. This is really important. First, we'll come back to this one. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. If anyone loves God, he has been known by God. That's a perfect tense there, has been. If anyone loves God, he has been known by God, foreknown by God. We'll be back. 
And this is the most devastating and, and important. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Couldn't be clearer. There are two kinds of human beings, the cursed and the non-cursed. That is, those who love the Lord and those who don't. There are only two kinds of people, lovers of Jesus and those who don't. So, the point was that this is not a group of people right here. Within Christianity, this is Christianity. All Christians have all things work together for their good. Last question on Romans 28, 28. Why is the qualification of loving God supplemented with those who are called? Why didn't he just say, and to all who love God, everything works together for good, period. Why comma to those who are called? according to his purpose. Why, why that? Because he wants to give the objective divine side to the subjective human side. From our side, we know that all things work together for good if we love God, if we're Christian. From God's side, he doesn't leave it at the subjective, human, fragile basis. He says, if you love God, that's an evidence that you're called. And the call here is not ineffectual. How do you know that? Because here in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. So behind this calling is predestination. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Notice, it doesn't say some of those that he predestined, he called, and some of those whom he called, he justified, and some of those he justified, he also glorified, he says, says, those, 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 all of them. Which means that between the call and the glory, nobody drops out. None. It's absolutely secure and certain. If you're called, you're justified. If you're justified, you're going to be glorified. It's as good as done. That's why it's past tense there. So when he says up in verse 28 that the people for whom God works everything together for good are the called, he means they're the ones whom I've foreknown and predestined and called and justified and will glorify. They are absolutely secure. And what I'm doing in working everything together for good is inserting myself into their lives to get them there. That's full of implications too, isn't it? That 
we tend to think mechanically about eternal security, like, okay, if I'm called, then I'm secure. So God doesn't need to work anything together for my good, like to conform me to Jesus or to get me to glory. Well, of course he does. That's the way he has ordained to get you there. That's the way he has ordained to keep you secure. The means that God uses, like the intercession of the Holy Spirit and like working everything together for your good are essential for you to make it to glory. This connection here between between justification and glorification is a connection that God maintains by means. Like if you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll make it. By the Spirit. So he doesn't leave us to our, ourselves. So this call here, what is it? What is the call? Let's linger on that for a minute. That's really important. Where are you? Well, maybe you're not here. I lost you. I want 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll just write, I'll just recite it for you because I can't find it. What is the call of God? So we have seen right here in verse 30 that this call leads to justification. But justification is by faith. Therefore, this call, which has infallible connection with justification, must create the faith. Is that an inappropriate theological inference? 1 Corinthians 1, 22, I think, where it says, The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, what is the call? We preach Christ crucified is not the call. Because there's Jews who are saying stumbling block and Gentiles who are saying foolishness. But the called regarded as power, wisdom. So if preaching Christ crucified is not the call, since so many don't respond that way, what is the call? And the answer is the call is the work of God opening the hearts of people to see in the general call the irresistible beauty of Christ in the cross so that you say power, wisdom. This is an effectual call. Theologians distinguish between the general call of God. We preach Christ crucified. Billy Graham at a 55,000 person stadium across town is issuing a call. Come, come. And then within that call, there is the work of the Spirit of God effectually drawing people to 
Christ, and that is this call right here. Because all the called are justified, and you're only justified by faith, therefore all the called are wakened to believe. That's why Romans 8.28 is so rock solid certain. All the called have everything worked together for their good because all the called are predestined to be believers by the gift of God. I just, I just saw the number. There it is. <laughs> but to those who are called, those using Greeks, but here's, here's another one. Just to so you feel how it works. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, like your faith. That's God's call. Back to our basic text here. According, we're not quite done with Romans 28, 28, according to his purpose. What's that? We are called according to his purpose. It's the same as saying he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son and those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he predestined, he called. So the predestining is the is the exercising of this purpose over here. And the purpose is to conform us to the image of his son and to bring us to glory. Verse 29. For, why is that going to work? For, let me do some erasing here so this looks a little more manageable. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does foreknow mean? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he... So the first one in the chain is foreknow. And here two theologies go apart. Now I'm just going to state the two theologies without putting any name on them. One theology says the meaning of foreknow is God foresees... Human, self-determined faith. And seeing human, self-determined faith several thousand years in advance, he predestines those who will, by their self-determination, believe he predestines them to sonship and to conformity to Christ. And the reason for that theology, the reason that 
meaning is seen here is partly because there's such a jealousy that this word predestination not destroy the power of human self-determination. If, if human self-determination is removed, they would say, then responsibility is removed, accountability is removed, and thus guilt is removed, and the need for the cross is removed, and Christian theology collapses to the ground if you take away human self-determination. So that's one view. I don't think that view is true, and the reason I don't is because it won't work in the flow of the thought here. Notice. So if, if you believe that the, the point of this foreknow here is that God foresees my self-generated believing in Christ so that I could be united to him and thus be saved and maintain my accountability responsibility, then what are you going to do with called? Those whom he foresaw who created their own faith, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called, and none of the called fall out. And we've seen that the calling, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and in Romans 4, 13, is God's effectual work of producing the faith. In other words, I don't think there is in this text anything like self-determination. There isn't any self-determined faith here. Well, what in the world would foreknow mean then? Foreknew. He foreknew. What do you know? Now, that's a very good question, and we need some biblical help to answer what foreknow means, because the predestination is based on the foreknowing, and everything else is based on that. So what is it? Let's do a little, little tour. If anyone loves God, he has been known by God. If anyone loves God, this is 1 Corinthians 8, 3, he has been known by God. Loving God is an evidence that God has known you in the past. He's pre-known you, foreknown you. Hmm. So that the loving God is the effect of the being known by God, not not the other way around. That's the first clue that we're up to something different. Here's, here's how the word know is used in the Old Testament. Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. That's sexual intercourse. So know means take into your most intimate relation. And the word know is kind of a euphemism to cover the sexual intimacy of the act of I choose you for my sexual partner. 
or Genesis 18, 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him. The, 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 the word chosen is in the ESV. The word known is in the King James Version. It is in the Hebrew, simply straightforward, no. I've known Abraham that he may command his children. I've chosen him. He's mine. To know is to set one's acknowledgement upon. That's the closest I can get in English. Like the senator from Minnesota is acknowledged. What does that mean? Acknowledged. Acknowledged. It means I choose you to speak right now. I'm arguing that foreknow means choose because of what we're seeing here. Here's Amos. You only, Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What is this? You know, God knows all the other nations in that he knows about them. But this no is I've taken you into my intimate relation. I've chosen you for myself. Psalm 1, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, he knows the way of the wicked too, but not this way. This knowing is a, uh, I approve of it, I embrace it, I acknowledge it. That's mine, that's the way I want you to live. So, when it says those whom he foreknew, see verse 29 here, with all that green around it, now red, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I'm arguing because it fits the flow of the thought and it fits the usage of no in numerous occasions that this is foreordain or choose. It's election. When he says later, who should bring any charge against God's elect? Has he even said that before? It just comes out of the blue. Yes, he has said it before. Namely right here in verse 29. To foreknow them is to set his favor upon them, draw them into his intimate fellowship, and elect them, and then predestine them. So man is responsible to know and to live up to what he knows, and he's guilty because he never does live up to what he knows. But God does not give the final and decisive choice of salvation to anyone. He remains decisive. He remains the one who is the ultimate arbiter of fallen sinners' lives. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God's purpose in predestination or what is this purpose here? His 
Predestination and election are not the same. Let's just clarify this. Election or foreknowing is God's setting his favor freely on sinners who don't deserve anything from him at all and taking them into his care and then he has a plan for them and that's predestination. And what is the plan? The plan is that they would be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Which means that predestination is fundamentally family growing. Right? I want a family. I predestine conformity to my son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I want a family. And so I will have it and I predestine it to be so. To be conformed to the image of my son. It's really interesting, isn't it, that the son is the image of the father and we are the image of the son, which means we've got this sequence there's the Father, there's the image of the Father, there's the image of the Son, who's the image of the Father, which means God is filling the earth with images of himself in redemption as well as in creation. The glory of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. A question I ask is, so is Christ being diminished if predestination is trying to gather in a big family in his image? I want lots and lots of brothers of Jesus. Lots and lots of brothers of Jesus. So is Christ being diminished by having this huge ingathering of brothers of Jesus? No, because he said my point in predestination is that we would be conformed to his image in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Not that he would just have brothers, but that he would be surrounded by brothers who exalt him as honored among all the brothers. It really is about the supremacy and exaltation of Christ, but God loves to have a family in the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And the point of verse 30, after all of that foreknowing and predestination, is simply to show there are no dropouts. The emphasis of this chapter is on your security. You see that, don't you? You feel that. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Nobody dropped out. Are you justified? If you're justified, you're going to be glorified. Because it was rooted in predestination and foreknowledge. I, I remember at the end of the 80s when I was preaching on this passage. I think I preached four sermons on verse 30. And I drove by one of those uh, skyscrapers when it was a hole in the ground. And I had heard that it was going to go up 35 or 40 stories. And I looked in the hole and it was like six floors deep. I thought, whoa, that's a big hole in the ground. 
and I, I use that as an illustration in the sermon the next Sunday, that the higher, the higher the building you're going to build, probably the deeper you need to take the foundations, which is why um, verse 28, being about as high as it can get, all things working for our good, needed something as weighty as verses 29 and 30 underneath it because that's where they are. This word four right here. Everything written in verses 29 to 30 about foreknowledge or election, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification, all of it is a support for, for verse 28. Paul takes verse 28 really, really seriously. Next paragraph. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now notice, what shall we say? And he's is followed by six rhetorical questions. Say, what should we say? Instead of saying, he asks questions. Why? I think as he comes to the end of the chapter, the way his mind is working here is not to just keep tossing out magnificent truth but to ask his readers, to ask you right now, what will we, what will you and I say? And then instead of telling you what to say, he asks you and makes you answer. What shall we, you and I, say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's the first one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also graciously give us all things? That's the second one. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the third one. Who is to condemn? That's the fourth one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And the fifth and sixth come in verse 35 following. So those are the questions that draw you in and force you as you come to the end of this chapter to say, what are you going to say? What will you say? Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, God is for us. That's what the whole chapter has been saying. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. That's what it means. He's for us. Who's this us here? That's the called, the predestined, the elect, the justified. Nope. Don't rip the flow of thought apart here and say, that's well, everybody. God is not for everybody that way. John 3.16 is true. For God so loved the world that, now what does that look like? He gave his son so that whoever believes would have life. So that's the way he's for the world. He gives his son, offers him freely to the world, 
Absolutely anybody who receives the Son has life. That's not what this text has been about. This text is about so vastly more than the offer. This is God moving into my life, conquering my flesh and my insubordination, granting me to see the Son, believe in the Son, and be drawn to the Savior. That's what the call means, and he's for the elect in a way that he's not for everybody. So the us here is the people that he's been talking about in the preceding verses, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified. If God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer to that? Nobody. To which you respond, you've got to be kidding. Paul, have you just fallen asleep? You've been in prison so many times you told us you couldn't count them. You have been lashed with 39 lashes five times. Your back is probably one scarred mass. You were beaten with rods three times. You described dangers in the streets and dangers on the seas and dangers in the cities. Have you forgotten how many people are against you? What are you talking about? It's like Psalm 91 that we were singing, right? No weapon against you will prosper. you got to have a broad and deep biblical theology to make sense out of that sentence if they just cut your husband's head off in Syria. Well, he said it, and nobody is the right answer. Who, who can be against us? Nobody, which means nobody can successfully be against us. No weapon will prosper in achieving any ultimate destruction at all. That of course we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We're being killed all day long. Paul is not stupid. He's not self-contradictory within a matter of two verses. He hasn't forgotten what his life is. And when he says nobody can be against us, he means nobody can successfully be against us. They can't ruin us. They can't destroy us. They can't condemn us. All they can do is dispatch us to paradise. And... Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Second question, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And every time you hear a rhetorical question, you need to know that he expects you to be able to answer. And so you turn it into a statement, which would go like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, most certainly will not. He will not fail to graciously give us all things. And those all things, remember, include death, sword, peril, famine, nakedness, sword. Yes, he will give us all things. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's the answer? Nobody would accept all the people that hate Christianity and the devil who's named the accuser and 
So exactly the same. He's not naive. He knows what he's saying. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So picture this. Court after court after court is accusing you and taking you to court. And you're appealing and appealing and appealing all the way. And you know why you're not losing any sleep? The Supreme Court has already rendered. It's over. There isn't any higher judge than it is God who justifies. If God justifies, the lower courts don't make you lose any sleep. You can't appeal God's ruling. Therefore, of course, people can bring charges, but they can't make them stick. That's what he's saying. Nobody can bring a a charge against you successfully. Nobody can bring a charge against you and make it stick. That's good news. Because Christians are going to be criticized. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, count on it. Who is to condemn nobody? Four reasons. One. Christ died. Two, Christ rose. Three, Christ is at the right hand of God. Four, Christ prays for us. Christ died. Chapter 8, verse 3. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin, my sin, in his flesh. Therefore, my Condemnation does not exist. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He bore it for us. Second, he was raised, which means God smiled upon the success of his redeeming work and said, it is finished. Rise. We'll bear witness together. You succeeded. He is at the right hand of God, which means there isn't a place of higher honor for him, which means you don't ever have to worry that God's going to have a different take on you than Jesus does. He has put his son after his finished work at the place of supreme honor and therefore he loves what his son achieved for you. And he is interceding for us and I have to just point you to um, two, two illustrations of this. Here's Jesus praying for you in John 17. What does he pray? What's he doing tonight, right now? This is wonderful to think about. Right now, in heaven, Jesus is praying for you. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. See, he's for his own differently than he's for the world. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you've given me, for they are yours. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I think that's a steady state prayer to the Father, that you would not be destroyed by the devil, that all of his temptations would not succeed in ruining your faith. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify, this is the second thing he's praying, positively. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So keep them from the devil and make them holy. My God, in my name, I pray. Amen.
I'm so glad Jesus is praying that I am kept from the devil and that I would kill the deeds of the body by the Spirit successfully because if he weren't praying that, I don't think it would be happening. Otherwise, he's wasting his time. He's not wasting his time. Remember, God uses means to get us from justification to glorification. One of the means is the prayers of the Holy Spirit. One of the means is our own by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. Another means is the prayers of Jesus. This is a dynamic universe. And the Trinity is active in it to save us at every turn. Here's a beautiful illustration. I love this text. This is Jesus talking to Peter just before he denies him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Did it? Does Jesus pray in vain? No, he never prays in vain. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and it did not fail utterly. And he knew exactly how far he would go and where he would stop him, because he says when you have turned again, not if. That's beautiful. I love that sovereign when. I have prayed for you, Peter. I've told you already you're going to deny me three times. I don't lie. You are going to deny me three times. But I prayed that your faith would not fail in that. And you perish with Judas. And God will answer my prayer. I know that because I say, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's the sovereign Jesus praying effectually for Peter. We're almost done. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Is it not amazing that at the crescendo of the greatest chapter in the Bible, he chooses to describe the most horrible experience in the Bible that Christians endure? Isn't that amazing? For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as slaughtered. Sheep to be slaughtered. You know why I think he quote, chose to quote Psalm 44, verse 22? That's what this is. Psalm 44, verse 22, right there. Because it's one of those rare psalms in which the psalmist is saying... See if I've got it here, I can't remember. Nope. Oh, yeah, there it is. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
What's he saying? He's saying, we're innocent. We're innocent. If we had forgotten the name of God, if we had spread out our hands to a foreign God, well, God would know that, and of course we would be punished. We didn't. We're faithful. That's why he chose that verse. Because these Christians here who shall separate us, they haven't done anything to bring distress, tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword down on them. No, in all those things, we are more than conquerors. Just one observation before we go to the last chapter. I don't think here where it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He means, will Christ stop loving us? That's been established already. The Father and Christ, they're not going to stop loving us. This is, are there things that when they come into your life could be evidence that you've been cut off and his love can't reach you anymore? Separate, separate. He's still loving, but it can't get through. Like distress is blocking it and tribulation is blocking it. And look at this word, who here. Isn't it interesting? He says who and then he gives things and events. Who shall separate? And then he gives things, tribulation, distress, persecution, damage. Those are who or are they? What about the devil? Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You'll have tribulation, be faithful unto death. The devil can kill you. Put you in prison and see that you are dead. So, behind any of these, especially this one, could be the devil. And what he's saying is, the devil cannot succeed in blocking the love of Christ toward you. He can't block it. He can't make a separation happen. Which leads us to the last paragraph where it says the same thing in regard to the Father. Last paragraph. For I am sure... For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not saying, I am sure God will never stop loving you. That's a given in this, in this paragraph, in this uh, chapter. 
He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. His love is rock solid, constant, rooted in everlasting pre-knowledge of you. Election. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is these 10 things here, death, life, angels, rulers, present things, future things, powers, height, depth, and anything else can't successfully block it. So let me draw a little picture and then we'll quit. This is a river. Can you tell? The fountainhead of the river is the love of God. The receiver at the other end is you and me, the elect. And the love of God, I'm saying, is a given and never stops flowing to us, ever. The question is, can you block it? So the devil puts a dam across called death. And what Paul is trying to say in his no, nothing can separate us is not merely this death can be thrown out of the way. Like there it is off on the side, just thrown up on the bank and the love's still flowing. Uh-uh. This, this obstacle here is turned and drawn into the love of God and made to serve you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. To die is gain. Go ahead, devil. Make my day. In other words, in other words when, when the devil tried to block it, he didn't just, God didn't just throw it out of the way. He said, all right, come on, serve. I'll give you another illustration of that besides Philippians 1.20. What about 2 Corinthians 12? I have a thorn in the flesh. What does he call it? A messenger from Satan. And what does God do with it? He turns it into sanctification. Humbling Paul. And Paul says, all the more gladly will I boast in my weaknesses within the power of Christ. That just must gall Satan. I meant to block the love of God and my thorn was made an instrument of love. All of them are. That's why I put this here. This I am sure is just like this, but we do know. And what do we know? We know that all things are not thrown out of the way. All things work. Death works. Do you remember what the devil did the night Jesus was betrayed? What an idiot. He put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. 
and committed suicide. Colossians 2.15 says, At the cross, the principalities and powers were disarmed. Satan, you're an idiot. You, you always wanted to keep him off the cross, and now at the end of his life, you're trying to get him on the cross. Don't you realize what this is going to mean for you? All that horrid, horrid suffering that you're gloating in is going to flow in the river of God's love towards millions of people and save them for everlasting glory because you did it. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the, the river not only cannot be blocked, all the blockages, according to Romans 8, 28, become part of the flow of love and serve God's people. I'm finished. Let me end like this. Actually, tomorrow morning is the end. But let me end like this. What, what shall we say to these things? You should say all this. But what will you do? And I think Paul and God want me to end on this note. Do you remember back in verses 1 through 4? where it says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I argued that the just requirement of the law fulfilled in us by walking through the spirit is love. And so I think this whole chapter is meant to make you radically loving. Risk-taking loving. Off the charts, radically, sacrificially, risk-takingly loving. You are meant to feel a security in suffering that sends you into the most difficult situations here and places in the world that no ordinary person would go because only Christians are this secure in, in, in suffering. I think it's all serving the fulfillment of the law. He died so that we would walk by the Spirit, so that we would fulfill the just requirement of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So my people, hit those streets, hit those churches, hit those nations, and lay your lives down, and don't fear anything. Isn't that the point of all this security? So tomorrow morning, We'll try to answer the question from the big picture. Why is it the greatest chapter in the Bible? So, Father, I pray now that very, very powerfully and very practically, the security and the certainty and the confidence and the joy and the hope in which we stand because of these magnificent truths would produce the fruit of love in the most practical ways tonight and then all the rest of our lives in some pretty vocationally transforming callings. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.